turn to Paul's epistle to the Romans. I'll be reading chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of the grace that is this teaching of Paul's, we call Romans. And we're needed, we're in need of grace as we begin to scale this mountain of mercy and understanding of your ways which is the very joy of all who are called to be saints in Rome or anywhere from the first century to today. So we ask you, begin and continue to glorify your name in our midst through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm not getting any younger. And we only get so many productive years here on earth. So it is finally time to delve into this Mount Everest Bible book we call Romans. Now, even though you could pick it up, stand at this pulpit, read this book out loud, and take only an hour in 10 minutes, its impact upon the church and upon Western civilization cannot be overstated. And its influence upon my own life, my own thinking, my worldview, the way I see reality since the age of 20, is massive. The content, the very essence of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, of what Christianity is at its core, is laid out from beginning to end clearly in this epistle. And arguably, the most important theologian in the history of the church, St. Augustine, he owed most all of his thinking and his theology to Paul's letter to the Romans. This epistle that we are beginning this morning, it was the main culprit in the great reformation of the church in the 1500s. It is this writing that formed Martin Luther's theology. It's, it's where he got his understanding of sin, the fall, and the law versus the gospel. And 
what the meaning of the righteousness of God means that is given to us as a gift. And that one, unlike his previous Pharisee life, is justified before God only by faith in the hearing of this gospel. Luther's exegesis of Romans is what really formed his view, large word, of salvation from beginning to end. Luther wrote this, quote, The epistle of Romans is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It's worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin in the 1500s said this. When anyone understands this epistle to the Romans, he has a passage open to him to understanding the whole scripture. So this is the first week in this series through the book of Romans. That means, if you know me and been long enough in dealing with a new Bible book, this is the introductory sermon where we deal with background questions. Like, what is this book of Romans? Who wrote it? When? Why? Or another way to put that is, is this, to say, what are the circumstances that our great God and Savior used in time and in space and in context in Paul's life to get this book, this letter, not only into the Roman Christians' hands in the first century, but into our hands today? So, let's go at it. It's clear at the beginning, and no Scholars, there are many scholars who love to doubt all kinds of stuff about New Testament. But this, this letter has never been in question from Paul. He wrote it. And note this, that out of the 13 writings of Paul that are in our New Testament, only this book and Colossians are written to churches or persons that he never met. Just these two. So Paul, he paced back and forth. And his good friend, fellow brother in Jesus, skilled at shorthand, Tertius, is there. And he began to dictate to his brother what we have. Now, we know that. Because either listen or if you, if you glanced at chapter 16 of the book of Romans in verse 22, when 
Paul's telling, okay, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to them, say hi to them, say hi to them. He knows other people who have gone to Rome who are there, fellow brothers and sisters and those who were going to come. So he's writing all this information, and I just see Tertius saying, hey, Paul, can I say hi to? Go for it, Tertius. So he writes, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in Rome. Greet you in the Lord. So Tertius most likely scribbled, as Paul dictates, in, and they had shorthand. It's not just a 20th century secretarial thing, which young people don't even know what that is anymore when they did short. But, but they had their own kind of shorthand for dictation. And so he would take it down quickly. And then, of course, he would go and rewrite it in longhand and hand it back to Paul. And Paul would work over it and they would look at it. Yes, I need a gar here. I need an oon, oh yes, oh, or I need a hinna clause. Just make this clear, this because of this and this in order that that happened. They worked it and reworked it until Paul says, that's it, I'm satisfied. We got it now. Let's copy that now again. Let's make a copy of that and send this off with the group that's going to Rome. And here we have it. When did this happen? When did he write it? To get at that, we have to put the puzzle pieces together. And they're there, just like a lot of you. It's been Christmas, so people get puzzles, and they did in our house, and it starts with just a mess. And how do you put these together? Because once you get it put together, you start to see the picture. So what is this picture about when Paul wrote this, and where was he when he did it? So... In the letter, Paul tells the churches in Rome that his missionary endeavors over the previous years in the East are done. He's done. He's hit all the regions and the cities in the regions, in other words, of of Syria, of Galatia, of Asia Minor, of Macedonia, of Achaia. And if you look in your Bible map, in the back of your Bible, you'll see Jerusalem here and Syria, and you see Galatia, and you see Asia Minor, and you go over, the, over here and you see Macedonia, and you see Greece. Rome is over here further west. But he lets them know, my endeavor is to go way west all the way to Spain. Through you there in the church of Rome. And he tells them, here's my intention, while, wherever he's at, while he's writing this, he's going to send it off. I'm going back east first to Jerusalem to deliver the offering that I have been raising for the last couple years. Then I'm going to go to Spain by way of you. That's what he tells us. It's right there in the letter. Let me just... You just listen to what he says towards the end of the letter, making this clear in chapter 15 of Romans. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, In other words, where the gospel has reached people there. 
lest I build upon someone else's foundation. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, in the East, and since I have longed for many years to come to you there in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have stayed there for a while. Another enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going now. He's going to send the letter off. I'm going back east. I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So we know he wrote this right before that last trip to Jerusalem that Luke tells us about. And we know what happened. He got arrested when he got there. And he spent three years in Judea over there in Caesarea, incarcerated, before he appealed to Caesar and was shipped off finally to Rome. And you added that we, Paul, his, his close companion, his close friend who traveled with him extensively in his missionary journeys over the years, we call him Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He helps us pinpoint when and where even more so. So remember, he's writing to the church in Rome. Unlike when he writes to the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Thessalonians and those in Corinth or Ephesus, he's never been there. He didn't plant these house churches in Rome when he's writing. Let's get the picture. Let's flash back. Paul, as a Pharisee, hated Christianity. And he led the persecution of the church until his conversion on the Damascus Road. And he's a believer, and he's hanging out in that whole area for years. Tarsus, back to Damascus, eventually to Antioch. He's a Christian now for 14 years then he goes on his first missionary journey to the region, in your Bible map, of Galatia, those cities of Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, etc. And that takes about three years. And then, after that missionary journey, he returns to his home base in the city of Antioch in Syria. And then, while they're there, the church sends Barnabas and Paul to go down to Jerusalem because there's some big, controversial, theological problems. And they go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there and the elders, and we call that the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. They leave Jerusalem, they go back up to Antioch. They're there for a while until Paul then goes on his second missionary journey. He revisits those churches of the region of Galatia, and he doesn't really plant any churches in Asia Minor, but goes through it, and he goes over the waterway into the region of Macedonia, and then 
down on your map to Greece or Achaia. So he plants those churches of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and then Athens, Greece and then Corinth. We read this in Acts. And now he stays in Corinth for a good while and then we read what Luke writes to us in Acts 18, verse 12. When Gallio, remember that name, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, before Gallio. Why is that significant in an introduction of when he wrote it? Because from historical documents, we know that Gallio became proconsul in the year A.D. 51. And that places Paul at that juncture in his life in Corinth, end of A.D. 51 or in 52 A.D. And from there then, Paul returns back again to his home base, long trip, back to Antioch. He's there for a while before he sets out on his third missionary journey, where he then ends up now in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And he's there, Luke lets us know, for about two and a half years before that big riot took place by the silversmith. You know, it's hurting his business because people aren't buying these false God idols anymore. And before Paul then left Ephesus, Luke tells us this in Acts 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in spirit to pass through, leave Ephesus in other words, and pass through Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, visit those churches, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, Corinth, and then go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we know from Luke, he does leave Ephesus. He did visit those churches, and then he ends up in Corinth with the Corinthian church. And we know he's there for three months. It's at that time Paul writes, dictates the book of Romans. Right before he leaves, where he leaves Corinth, he does go on his journey to Jerusalem. And so picture him there in Corinth, and he says these words that we just heard. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, the church in Rome. Now, another clue is like over here we have San Pedro Harbor, a couple miles away, Long Beach, 
Harbor. Same thing in the area of Corinth. You had the Corinthian Harbor, and you had the harbor at Sincrea. Why is that important? This is what he says in chapter 16 of Romans, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. It's just seven miles away from the port in Corinth. So that you may welcome her in the Lord. Because obviously, Phoebe's one of the persons who will go with that group of persons carrying Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And you add to that what he says in verse 23 of chapter 16. Again, it's not totally rock solid. You're making guesses. You're putting the puzzle pieces together. He says this, Gaius, who is host to me, now Paul's living in his house while he's there, in this city, whatever it is, I think it's Corinth. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Now, we don't know, but this is probably the same Gaius that Paul spoke about a few years earlier when he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, when he said, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And then he says, Erastus, wherever he's at writing this, the city treasurer greets you. Probably the same Erastus that he writes later to Timothy, saying, Erastus remained at Corinth. Okay, all right. We got through there, right? Here's the point. You do all the chronological math. From Paul's first visit when we know he's in Corinth in A.D. 52. You add the years when he makes his trips back to Antioch and the time he's there. And then when he comes back and now he's in Ephesus for a couple years. And he goes to Macedonia and he's in Corinth. And we pretty much have it pinned down that he wrote this letter to the Romans in A.D. 56 or 57 from the city of Corinth. Now, he's addressing the Christians in the city, the capital city of the Roman Empire, which had a population of roughly one million people at the time of the writing. And in that city, there was, it's, yeah, you can see they can't pin it down, but these are the numbers when I look at the scholars. There was 20 to 50,000 Jews in Rome. Right now in America, the Jewish population as a whole is 2.2%. At that time in the capital city of Rome, it was anywhere between almost 3 to 5% were Jews. So we know what he just said and what we read earlier. Chapter 1, he writes, To all those in Rome who are loved by God, he doesn't mean every person in that context here, who are loved by God and called to be saints. They're saints, they're set apart, they're Christians, they've been called. And in verse 15, of chapter 1, he says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
know, the best that I could find roughly, like, how many Christians are there, man, when he's writing in the mid-50s? It seems like there's probably, from the information I can get, nothing like it will be 100 years from there in Rome, nothing like 200 years, where you're in the tens of thousands, only about 2,000 or so believers when he writes. And so, the book of Acts now, it doesn't tell us anything about how those churches, the, the, the house churches, the Christians, came about in the city of Rome. Who established them? We got nothing from Acts. So, I think the best guess, and this is along with many Scholars, the best guess is that there were many Jews who traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost and the festival. Luke lets us know this from all the different cities, and Rome is one of them. They traveled to Pentecost that very year when Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead, and Pentecost falls, and Peter preaches, and so many Jews were converted from all these different places, and so probably some of those Jews from Rome were converted to Jesus, and of course they go back home. They're Jews, they're believers in the Messiah, they don't just leave their synagogue, they're, all, they're just still part of the community, and they start to talk and to preach. And you mix that with, you think about over the next decade, more and more other people are converted in, in the world, particularly Jews, who are merchants, slaves, tradesmen, they would go to Rome and bring the gospel with them. But the whole point is this. That it's pretty solid that by the late 30s, Jesus is crucified, most likely 33, raised from the dead. By the late 30s, early 40s, we know there are Christian house churches in Rome. In other words, 17 to 20 years before Paul wrote this letter. Why did he write it? He's never been there. We know why he wrote different letters to Corinthians. We know from prison year after later that while he write to the Philippians, why did he write this to the Christians in this city? He's never, he didn't plan it. He didn't found that church. Well, most of you who read your Bible well and Romans, you know that, well, clearly one thing Paul makes clear is when he gets to Rome, he wants to raise a lot of money for his mission from them to go to Spain. Okay, Romans, hour and ten minutes. You could have written that so we can read it in a minute. Okay, so there's more to it than that that's connected, I think, to that. First, because of that, and when he gets there, I haven't met him, he knows they have heard stories about him that have traveled to Rome. And some of them are utterly wrong. Paul, 
His gospel and the way he preaches it, we, yeah, we might as well just be happy as professing Christians to sin all we can so that grace may abound. He knows that. He knows he's got enemies that have traveled there too, the Judaizers. And he's going to set the record straight because he says, This is my gospel. This is what I preach. Can you get behind that? And dig deep into your pockets and send me to Spain. But there's something that's also connected that comes out in the letter. It's, it's, it's not separate from that. It's connected to it. And that is, Paul, before he ever got there, wanted to help unify the church. Because what he knew by the mid-50s is that there was clear tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the city. That just seems to be clear. Now, why? What happened? Here's the most plausible explanation for how that happened. By the late 40s, remember, Jews in their communities in Rome and in their synagogues, some are getting born again. They're hearing the gospel and they're believing. And the brother-in-law isn't. And this goes on and on and on. And so you have a tension brewing between believing in Jesus Jews and unbelieving Jews. And it's causing more and more within the city of Rome, social disturbance. So much so that the Roman emperor, who lives in the city of Rome, Claudius, got fed up with it, and he kicked all the Jews out of the city. Banished them. We, we know this from the second century historian, Suetonius. We also know it from the first century historian, Luke, chapter 18, verse 2 of Acts. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So, the picture. All these Jewish Christians, not just unbelieving Jews and Jewish Christians, they're Jews, they're not, stop being Jews. They're gone from the community, Jesus' communities in the city of Rome, which isolates the Gentile Christians for a period of five years in Rome. And so the Gentiles, they continued to, to meet and to worship and to grow and to teach and have community and develop for those period of years without Jewish cultural influence upon them. The Gentile Christians became less and less inclined to practice certain parts of the law of Moses. 
like food laws and Sabbath-keeping and festivals and new moons. It's about a five years, because we know Claudius' reign as emperor ended in A.D. 54. And at that point, all the Jews were allowed back into the city of Rome. Probably didn't take much time before that tension now between the non-Jewish Christians and the Jewish Christians, it began to show. And we see hints of this in the letter of Romans itself. Some of the sweetest words in my life are to say these words, Romans 9 to 11. And if you know exactly what that unit is. But in Romans 9 to 11, Paul directs his words directly to the Gentile believers. Essentially telling them, stop being arrogant with your sinful pride against Jewish brothers in Christ. Arrogance of, well, the way we look at it more and more, we preach and more and more Gentiles come fleeing to Christ to be saved. And very few Jews do. Maybe that's owing to us. Only a remnant of Jews are really believing. And the Gentiles are becoming more and more the majority, and a bigger majority, of the church in the city. Listen to Paul's words now from Romans 11, verse 17 to 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, that means Jews, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that means Gentile Christians, you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, the Jews, and now the believing Jews, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, toward the Jews. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. He wants to deal with this tension, cause peace to come to them. And you add to that then chapter 14 and 15 together, right? Where Paul tells, first and foremost, the Gentile. Christians to accept their Jewish Christian brothers who, who because of their cultural backgrounds, all they, that's how they grew up. This is their culture. It's hard to change culture that was connected to Bible for them. He says, he tells them, accept them, those ones who still, because of their cultural background, are still restrictive in what they won't eat. And the observance of certain 
days is better than others and festivals. And again, the Gentiles are clearly the larger majority by this time. And Paul is addressing them first and foremost because he has concern that the Gentile Christians' dominant majority along with their arrogance and pride, which is sin, may destroy the faith of their Jewish brothers. So he tells, and you know he uses this term, you know your Bible, he tells the strong Christians, that is in this context, the Gentiles who did not adhere to Mosaic food laws, for instance, he tells them to, to not look down on their weaker Christian brothers the Jews who still did adhere to the Sabbath and kosher diet. That's, he sees this problem. How is he going to deal with it when he writes? The answer is not. Well, look, obviously, theologically, the Gentiles are right here. Not just for them, but... You know, you're invited over to a fellow Christian's house who's a non-Jew and they serve you baby back ribs. You should feel free to eat. That's Paul's answer. But he didn't just say, they're wrong and they're right. Because he knows human beings don't operate that way, for one. You're dealing with a deep cultural issue for two. And conscience was really huge. And it is huge for us today. Every one of us Christians. That even if we think something is a sin, and you're wrong about it, it's not sinful in and of itself. But you go ahead and do it. You've just sinned. Be, maybe down the road your theology might get straightened out and you'll do it freely. But because you sinned against your conscience. So the answer is, the way he does is not, here's the truth. He does say what the truth is on that issue. But the way he does it, he said, I want to bring them along. Let's go back to the very beginning. And go back to the fall. Go back to humanity. Go back to God's whole plan of salvation, working through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, and a particular people who have a unique play in redemptive history. Let's work it all out. And that's why we have what we have here in the book of Romans. He wants to get to the core of linear, redemptive history, culminating with the centerpiece now in the first century, the Messiah, Jesus, and how He is bringing together Gentiles and Jews in one body in Christ. And that's why you see one of the centerpieces of the book of Romans is about the Mosaic Law. And it's about the Jews' place, Israel's place in salvation history. And Paul wants to Free his, his Jewish brothers who are in Christ from legalistic adherence to Mosaic laws. 
But to do that, Paul knows, I need to persuade them from Scripture and God's plan of salvation and show them that so many of the ceremonial and cultural laws, circumcision, food laws, and days, they were all pointers to Christ. And as he gets to Romans 9 and accuses himself as a Pharisee and many unbelieving Jews that, that their whole approach to Moses was wrong-hearted. So he gets there and he says, Christ is the end, the telos, the goal of it all. That's what's behind Paul sitting in Corinth, this greatest of all theological writings in the history of the world. That's your opinion, I know. <laughs> and so, think about it now. If Paul succeeds in this endeavor, as he writes to the believing community of Jews and Gentiles in Rome, then there will be more unity when he eventually visits them. They will know clearly now what is your gospel and what is not your gospel that people have been saying. So the more that that unity happens, the more they grasp it. Paul, he's thinking those who are born again will hear. And they will see it. And they will believe it. And they will be happy to dig deep into their pockets and send me and my team on the way to Spain. And so in this first week, big book, 66 of them, we're dealing with one for a while. We call it Romans. So as I close, let's once more, let's get the picture. It's A.D. 57 in some room in Gaius' house in the city of Corinth. There's a short, balding Jewish man in his late 50s, pacing back and forth. He's a former theological Pharisee who years earlier led a devastating persecution of Jesus' followers. And this man, he was not a dynamic, charismatic public speaker. In fact, he was rather boring to some professing Christians who were more interested in charisma and personality than they were in the gospel. So as he paces, he begins to dictate to his friend Tertius, a very skilled at, at shorthand times his words rattled off his mouth quickly. Paul, servant, slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
And at times, I can just see him being very slow and deliberate. For, gar, gar, that Greek word, gar, for, we all, Jews and Gentiles, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by faith in Christ. They take a break or three during that long, shorthand, rough draft and sleep on it. And then Tertius takes it and works away, writing it out in longhand and gives that rough draft to Paul. He works through it. Is it precisely the way I want to say it? Yeah, let's make that edit. Let's make that edit over the next few days until Paul, that's it. We got it. Make a copy, Tertius, and then make another copy of that and send it on its way. And the result is that we have the most thorough, concise explanation of Jesus, of the gospel, of the message and the meaning of Jesus' life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from then. Not just that, oh, the cross saves me. Why? He tells us how that happened. And it grieves me that there are real Christians going to heaven who you ask them in any way, just broach it a little bit, why does it save me? And they don't have a clue when they've been around the church for 35 years. And it's right there. Not just in Romans, but boy is it there in Romans. And not only that gospel... But how it is that any of us sinners, Jew or Gentile, can be saved by it and what we must do. So when you get that picture there in that room, and Tertius is scribbling away, and Paul's dictating, who would have thought it would end up being the most important and influential piece of writing in the history of the world outside of the books of Moses? And so next week, we will begin our plunge into the ocean of what we call Romans. Of what Paul himself called the gospel. What he called the teaching which is the very power of God to save every soul who will hear it and believe it. Let's pray. Father, we sing. We sing because of this gospel. We sing because of Paul's gospel, the most thorough unfolding of redemptive history, 
at the core of the cross where you sent your son, according to Paul, to bear the wrath of God that was deserved by us. And you poured it out fully. And more than that, as we've already sung this morning, not merit of our own, but only of Jesus' perfect trust and obedience to the law is put to the account of wretched sinners like us who believe you are good. Oh, let our hearts again glorify your name as we take this glorious truth we just heard and let it come out our lips to our joy and to the uplifting of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. And amen. Let us stand and sing.